This episode is brought to you by IVP. How do you practice presence in neglected places? In Church Forsaken, Jonathan Brooks challenges local churches to rediscover that loving our neighbors also means loving our neighborhoods. Based on Jeremiah 29, Church Forsaken shows how Christians can be holistically and practically present in our communities, building relationships and planting gardens for the common good. As a listener of this podcast, you can receive Church Forsaken for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 at IVPress.com. This is IVP. We should be building online, not burning, because I do think there's a power to reach people for the gospel through them, but I'm spending way less time on just the social media platforms themselves. I'm like, look, I want to be here to build, and most of what these platforms are about is burning, and so I don't, I'm not bringing matches to the fight. I just want to be a guy who says, I have something productive to offer other people here so they can grow in their faith. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Digital Examine podcast. I'm Jay, and I'm so glad that you are joining us for our conversation today. Um, many of us have heard this before, but it's never any less jarring or even surprising every time I think about it or hear it. In the New Testament, the word Christian is found three times three times. And yet it is the go-to word that we use today in our culture, uh, in the modern world, to describe followers of Jesus. But the word disciple is found more than 250 times. It is the New Testament's, by far, the New Testament's go-to word for describing the life of following Jesus. And the word disciple isn't a word we use a lot in our day and age. And so I think there are some misunderstandings. One way to understand the word disciple is a student. And it is a student for sure, but not the student the way you and I think of students today in the modern world. When we think about students, we think about people who are in academic settings, who are learning a lot of knowledge and gaining a lot of information. And being a disciple uh, absolutely is about learning stuff, about gaining knowledge, growing in knowledge, and attaining more and more information from their teacher. But a disciple is much more than that. It's not just an academic journey. A disciple is akin to what in the modern world we might call an apprentice. You think about an apprentice who uh, is apprenticing under a mechanic at an auto body shop. That apprentice is not spending all of their time watching YouTube videos about how to fix cars. That apprentice is standing shoulder to shoulder with their teacher learning and watching and gaining knowledge, but then inevitably grabbing a wrench and getting under the hood, not only knowing what their teacher knows, but beginning to do what their teacher does. They are being formed into the likeness of their teacher. And that's what we're called to be as followers of Jesus, to be disciples, students who know the way of Jesus are learning the way of Jesus, but also apprentices who are actually embodying and living the way of Jesus. What's really interesting to me is that every person on the planet is a disciple. Every person on the planet is an apprentice. We are learning and then living a particular way based on the specific teacher we allow to teach us. And in the digital age, the internet for so many of us has become our teacher. And the internet is discipling us. It is forming us in its ways. And it's making us, it's, tr it's shaping and transforming us into a people that I think often we don't want to be. And more importantly, that God has never called or designed us to be. So today I am talking with a dear friend of mine, Patrick Miller, who serves as a pastor at The Crossing in Columbia, Missouri. 
and he's the host of a great podcast called Truth Over Tribe and is the co-author of a book by the same name, Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. What a subtitle. And he's also the co-founder of Endeavor, which is a website and online space designed to help um, disciple the internet. And so is that possible? That's uh, our conversation today. Is it possible to uh, disciple the internet instead of having the internet disciple us? What about the anxiety that so many of us feel because of our digital uh, online lives? And is it possible um, to see God as sovereign and find uh, abiding peace and hope and joy in the midst of the chaos that is the internet uh, in our day and age? That's our conversation today. I think you're going to find it immensely helpful thought-provoking, and hopeful. So uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with my friend, Patrick Miller. Patrick Miller, thank you so much for joining us on the Digital Examine podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Always great to get some time together, even if it's digitally in this case. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Thankfully, you and I, even though we live basically on other ends of the country, you've had a chance in the last year to be together in person several times and yeah. uh, always a good time. Yes, absolutely. Hey, um, you know, as I've gotten to know you, Patrick, of your many gifts that you offer, not just your local church, but I think the church at large, you're, you're increasingly becoming, in my opinion, such an important voice for um, church leaders and for followers of Jesus. But amongst those many gifts, I think one of the things that really stands out to me is you have this incredible ability to observe and assess, um, you know, contemporary cultural realities. And then you are able to confront some of those realities with wisdom and deep insight and, and a pastoral touch. So you've done so much work specifically um, along the lines of tribalism and online noise and the way it just creates so much exhaustion in us and, you know, the intersection of those things. So this is kind of a big, broad question to start, but but talk about those things, tribalism, noise, the exhaustion we feel. Um, talk about these pervasive realities, how they interplay in our lives and really what they're doing to us. Yeah, I think it's something that we all feel, uh, perhaps in really acute moments when you get into an awkward, difficult conversation online or with a real life person, but maybe more like this constant thrumming anxiety, fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of being misunderstood. And the way I would describe my own experience, it's like you're constantly walking part way into a conversation that's already underway. I mean, this is for sure true online. You know, someone responds or you respond to someone and you think you understand the context. You think you understand what they're talking about, uh, but you don't. And we're, we're in this situation of being context deficient. But of course, the opposite thing happens to us as well. When someone walks into a conversation that's been happening and assumes that they understand what you're saying and makes assumptions about you as a person as a result, which would be context collapse. They, they don't. <laughs> and that feels like so much of our life online, but even our life just having conversations with ordinary people, because, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the media, the media ecosystem was uh, very unilateral. You only had a few major news networks. We tended to have the same kinds of conversations, but now there's all of these conversations happening at once. And we assume everybody's a part of it. I think there's also just a biological element that is, uh, Part of the problem for us, uh, which is that we are quite literally hardwired for tribalism. Uh, the human brain is only 2% of your body mass, but it uses 20% of your calories. And, and we're out there in this world and anywhere you walk, I mean, think about the amount of inputs you have, all the things you see, all the things you hear, and your brain has this difficult job of organizing everything. And that's why tribalism is so appealing because when I'm in, in a group and it gives me a, a narration of reality, a way of seeing the world, it allows my brain to relax. I can just categorize everything with the narration that's happening around me. And, and, and I think that's why it becomes so exhausting is because again, 20, 30 years ago, people, you could assume they were watching the same things. You could assume they're having the same conversations and maybe even your geography, you could assume a certain shared political beliefs or orientations towards the world. But now it feels as though both online, especially online, but also in person, we're constantly having that experience of walking halfway into a conversation or having someone else do that to us. And over time, it just becomes emotionally and mentally exhausting. Yeah, man, that 
that's a really profound thought. There's an exhaustion that comes from almost the laziness of tribalism. Like it, it on the front end, if I'm hearing you correctly, and I'd love to hear you more, talk a bit more about this. If I'm understanding you right, on the front end, tribalism seems like the way to uh, relax, ease back, not as much effort, because now the tribe is doing some of the thinking for me. They're framing reality for me. And yeah. yet on the far end of it, on the far side of it, we feel utterly exhausted. Talk talk about that journey because you, you and I have both been through that journey where it is really tempting to like, oh, here's my tribe. I'm good. And then yeah. it just doesn't end up that way. I mean, in some ways, tribalism is uh, actually a good thing. Uh, I don't know how a toilet works. I don't know how to fix a toilet. <laughs> I could get onto YouTube and I might get half of the way there, but there's a reason I hire plumbers. And this is because in communities, inside of tribes, we store knowledge, not in individuals, but across the community. And yeah. that shared store of knowledge is a gift to us all so that when I'm sick, I can go to a doctor who has expertise. Or when I need legal help, I can go to a lawyer who has expertise. Um, and, and I'm essentially offloading the thinking duties to those individuals. Um, the challenge is when we're talking about these you know, hot topic, difficult cultural issues where there's lots of disagreement. When I start offloading my thinking to media pundits, uh, when, when I start offloading my thinking, you know, to the scriptural pages of the New York Times or, uh, you know, the, 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 the preaching of Tucker Carlson, whoever it is that I want to listen to, um, that has a power to uh, lead us astray. And because again, we're wired to be tribal. Part of that is if I, if I say something that doesn't fit with my tribe, that breaks me out of my tribe, I am now at risk of exclusion. And again, if you think about yourself as an ancient hunter gatherer, to be excluded was, was a existential problem. If you were excluded, you no longer had access to protection, to resources, to food. And so again, we, we are just hardwired not to offend our tribe. And so we can see the good sides of it, but I think that's the exhaustion that we constantly feel like we're on the outskirts of somewhere. We constantly feel like we're being left out of a conversation or kicked out of a conversation. And sometimes we don't even understand why that's happening. And so again, it, it, that's what I think causes that emotional, um, social, and psychological exhaustion that we're all experiencing. Yeah. When I think about a plumber who comes and you know helps our family out by doing work that I am unable to do, that plumber did not watch a YouTube video two hours prior to coming to my house to learn hopefully how to fix, not. right? Yeah, hopefully not, you know, hopefully that shows up in the Yelp review or whatever. They've put in the work and so now it's this benefit to the community or the doctor. I go mm -hmm. to the doctor and I know that that doctor has spent years and years of their life in real focused work. When you think about the internet, and the, the landscape of sort of our digitally mediated lives, uh, and you talked about expertise and this sort of, you know, faux expertise so many of us have. We live in a, and I love TED Talks, but we live in a TED Talk culture. So I've, I've been tempted to do this. Like, oh man, I watched the seven minute TED Talk on neuroscience and now I know everything there is to know about neuroscience <laughs> or something. I mean, talk yeah. about how you see that sort of unfolding in, in, the digital landscape. I think that we all have a temptation to um, overestimate our expertise. So there's a fascinating study, or it, it's an effect called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It comes from a study done by two people, Dunning and Kruger. And what they were doing was um, asking managers to rate their own competency. So the managers would go through and they give themselves, you know, high, low, middling ranges of competency. And then they went and asked their employees how competent their manager was. And the fascinating thing that happened was that the managers who gave themselves the highest level of competency received the lowest ratings from their people. And it's not uh, because they were proud or vain. It's because when we're incompetent, we often don't realize that we're mm. incompetent. And when we actually have experience, we begin to realize how incompetent we actually are. So if you take uh, someone who's read a single article on uh, immigration policy and you ask them to rate their confidence, they're very likely to say, I know a lot about immigration policy. But if you go and you speak to someone whose entire life is uh, working on immigration policy, they'll give themselves an accurate rating because they'll know, you know, there's 10 people who know more than me, but there's, you know, 40 people who know less than me. And so here's where, where I rank. And, and I think the internet has this ability to make us all, um, 
kind of idiotic by accident because the knowledge that we receive there is so shallow and so amateurish and yet is often said with such confidence that we think that we know more than we do. And, and so, you know, this is kind of just one of those digital practices you almost have to get yourself into, which is just pausing and self-evaluating and asking, do I actually know as much about X as I think I know. And if I don't know as much about X as I think I know, then this is precisely the moment when I need to be slow. I need to listen. I need to ask questions. I need to explore because the odds that I'm wrong are much higher than it would be in a sphere that I actually have a great deal of expertise in, which again, because of our limited caloric uh, you know, output in our brains is going to be very limited. There's very few things I know a lot about. And I'm confident about those things because I've spent time thinking about them. But the vast majority of life, I'm, I'm actually rather incompetent. And again, this is the gift of tribals. And there's other people who are competent. The problem becomes when I think that I am competent in all things because I read, you know, my Twitter scroll all day. Yeah. You know, along those lines, I've heard you say, ask the question really, okay, there are 5 billion people globally online. That number's just constantly going up and up. And then you ask this really poignant question, what happens if all the Christians leave? So in conjunction with what you just said, there might be some of us listening who are like, you know what, Patrick, I'm in. I'm throwing away all electronic devices and I'm going to go live on a farm and just care about me and my own and my yeah. farming neighbors. You know what? I mean, what do you think would happen? If all the Christians left and, and why is that problematic? Maybe even, you know, tragic. Why, why is that a problem? Because there is a temptation. It's like, I'm, I'm out. I'm just, you're right. I'm not an expert. I'm just going to read my Bible and, you know, take care of my family. And that's that. Yeah, the, the, the digital Benedict option. Well, yeah. if I'm going to be honest, on the one hand, if, if all the Christians left the internet, um, we'd probably all be healthier, happier, and less stupid. So <laughs> there's probably some truth that needs to be wrestled with. Um, but on the other hand, uh, a single TikTok video deconstructing Christianity will reach hundreds of thousands of people in an hour. Mm. Um, and that that's just a simple fact. It's reality. I can tell you what the yeah. account is and I can tell you where the videos come out and it happens on a consistent basis. And I've always had to wrestle with the question that Paul asks, asks in the book of Romans. This is Romans ten fourteen. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? And I, I think Paul is putting a missional prerogative in front of people that God has calling us out into the modern day Areopaguses to yeah. speak the gospel, to share the good, beautiful, loving truth that God's kingdom is coming on earth through the church, through the work of Jesus. This is a calling that we all have. And of course, it's terribly risky. Paul was beaten and attacked. He would have been a lot healthier, happier, uh, maybe not less stupid <laughs> if, if, if he hadn't gone on his missionary journeys. But I, this is going to sound like a weird example. The other one I think a lot about is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, when uh, the Nazis had you know, basically entirely taken over control of uh, Nazi Germany, for um, almost a decade, six, seven years at this point, yeah. uh, he received an offer to move to New York City from Reinhold Niebuhr uh, to be a guest lecturer at a seminary. And he took the offer. He gets on a boat. He ends up in New York City. And just a few weeks later, he decides he has to leave. And he writes this letter that we still have to Niebuhr. And he says, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America at this time. I must live through this difficult period in our national history along with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I don't share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that a future Christian civilization may survive, or else willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization and any true Christianity. I know of which I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from a place of security. And I think we probably all want a place of security. And, and while I don't think, well, I mean, the threat of the internet might be as dire as um, the Nazi threat in some senses in terms of what it's done to our institutions and our life together. Um, I don't think we can uh, make a, a choice against the internet uh, from a place of security. And unfortunately, I think that does mean active engagement with uh, digital missionary work. The key is to not become digital Nazis. You know, that's, that's always the missionary problem. I went to the city to change the city and the city changed me. And that yeah. is just as likely to happen on the internet as it is in where you're located in Silicon Valley or anywhere else in the world.
Yeah, man, that's such a good word. I love the connection to Bonhoeffer. I think his, for those who are listening and maybe, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a name you've kind of heard here and there. I would highly encourage yeah, his life. Um, I think models for us. I've never really made that connection, but I think it's a profound yeah. one that the mm -hmm. way he navigates World War II and essentially at the end of the day really gives his life, you know, because of the decision he makes. But now he's left this legacy of what it looks like to wade into the cultural waters um, without fear and without, you know, the Benedictine option of just, I'm going to go to Union Seminary and hang out there in America where people aren't, you know, battling each other on, on the fields of war. Yeah, it's a, it's a profound thought, a really convicting sort of invitation. Um, you know, so as followers of Jesus then say, okay, I'm in, I'm not going to cancel my internet subscription and get rid of my smartphone. Like I will stay in the fight and try to be, uh, you know, a beacon of hope and light and the gospel in, in the darkness that is so much of, of the digital age. Um, you know, you, you mentioned it very quickly, but I want to ask you, uh, to expound on that idea. We've got to make sure that, you know, I went to a city to change the city, but the city changed me very much is what happens to so many of us. I went to the internet to change the internet, but the internet changed me. You see it all the time. I mean, you wrote an article a couple of years ago that went viral, um, about, you know, somewhat a parishioner, a congregant in your church who was grieving the loss of their mother not to a sickness, but to Facebook. And um, I, I've read that multiple times. It's just so poignant because it is so real. I've had the same conversation with so many people. So as Christians, followers of Jesus, don't retreat, but wade into the digital waters. What are some ways, like practically as a pastor, what are some ways we can make sure that we are doing our best to disciple the internet and not allowing the internet to disciple us? I think first you have to acknowledge the temptations. Um, if you uh, start trying to, to do any sort of, again, digital discipleship, digital mission, like I'm just trying to care for people online, I'm trying to reach people online, you will always have the temptation to become highly online, to go digital native. And I think being highly online is a dire choice because if you do that, you will be fully habituated to the digital world. If you give it all of your time, if you give it all of your life, you'll take off peace, you'll put on pugilism, you'll take off patience, you'll put on reactivity, you'll take off joy, you'll put on cynicism. Um, people who would otherwise be peacemakers become hardened tribalists. We end up expending more time tearing, uh, more time and energy tearing institutions down on uh, social media than we do building them up in local institutionalized life. And because that's the way of a digital native um, who, who knows no in-betweenness uh, between both local in-person life and in digital life. And I think the key here is understanding that the internet is a habit-shaping, character-forming habits hat. Um, I mean, have you ever noticed the, the behavioral similarities between highly online people on both the right and the left? It's like they're both reactive. They're both knee-jerky. Uh, they both call names. They both swarm. They both troll. They both intentionally misread and misrepresent. And I think the reason why the highly online right and the highly online left look so identical isn't because they share worldviews. It's because they share habits shaped by a shared habitat. Mm. And it, you have to understand, again, this is this is like missionary work 101 when you're thinking about contextualization is you have to understand where you're going. What are the ideologies and the idols of the place so that you understand how to lovingly and graciously resist them? I think on the positive side, you need to start thinking about yourself like a border stalker. I take that language from Makita Fujimura who talks about this um, in culture care. Um, and a border stalker is someone who lives in between worlds, in between tribes. And so I try to think about that for myself digitally. I live on the borders of digital and analog life. And what that means for me practically, first of all, maybe most importantly, is I try to measure my online speech by New Testament standards. If the Bible calls me to love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, do my words online match that standard? Um, just the other day, I posted something I shouldn't have posted. I pulled it down, and the guy that I had 
said said something about sent me a message like hey why'd you pull that down and i said well you know actually i'm sorry because this is exactly the kind of thing i never want to say because it was it was too critical and it didn't meet my standards of speech um and i always joke if you're not confessing online you're you're either not uh really a a, a digital native in any real sense or you're not being honest with yourself um, but i think the other thing it means practically is analog scrutiny um, i have a lot of friends who follow me online and they give me tremendous accountability for my online action. They call me out when I make mistakes. And those are local institutions. Like those are people who are in my day-to-day life. And the last thing I would just say is we should be building online, not burning. Um, I'm actually on Twitter a lot less than I used to be. And I'm trying to focus most of my quote unquote digital effort on making stuff. I'm making podcasts, I'm writing articles, and I'm trying to share those online and share the ideas uh, via Twitter and YouTube and other places, because I do think there's a power to reach people for the gospel through them, but I'm spending way less time on just the social media platforms themselves. I'm like, look, I, I want to be here to build, and most of what these platforms are about is burning, and so I, I don't, I don't, I'm not bringing matches to the fight. I just want to be a guy who says, I have something productive to offer other people here so they can grow in their faith. As you're listening to this conversation with Patrick, I want to give you a moment, uh, wherever you are, as long as it's safe to do so, just take a moment and take a few deep breaths and ask yourself the question, contemplate um, this really convicting question. How has the internet discipled you? How has it shaped your habits? Think about the first moments after waking up or your final moments before going to bed. What is it that you are filling your mind and your heart with? Begin to name it. Offer it to God. Commit to change if that's what's necessary. And further, ask yourself, what would it look like for you to live as a border stalker, living between analog and digital worlds? And even more than that, not simply living in between those worlds, but living in such a way that you are bringing peace into a place of hostility, where you are, in the words of Patrick, building instead of burning online. Give yourself a few moments, contemplate those things, take an assessment of your own digital life. And again, name it, offer it to God, and commit to whatever change you sense God by his spirit is asking you to make. about recent challenges in the body of Christ, we see example after example of leaders missing a crucial quality, humility. New Testament scholar Dennis Edwards has done a wonderful service to help us better understand what true humility is in his book, Humility Illuminated. Dr. Edwards doesn't just think that we need to embody humility as one of the markers of the Christian life. He actually thinks it is the identity marker for those who follow Christ. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on Humility Illuminated at ivypress.com. Yeah, that's so good. Um, along those lines about building stuff online instead of burning, uh, a bit of a segue, but really connected um, on Endeavor, which is this uh, online platform that you run. Beautiful, beautiful work happening there. You um, recently wrote an article called Why Your Church Should Start a Parish Podcast. I found it so fascinating, and it is really an invitation to exactly what you're saying build online, wade into those waters and create good there. That doesn't, you know, add matches to the fire, but actually build something really beautiful. So, um, you know, I would invite 
followers of Jesus and church leaders specifically to go check it out and read the podcast, uh, read the article for themselves. But um, give give people a brief synopsis of of the points you're trying to make and and why. Why is it why is it a thing? Why should churches even wade into the digital waters and try to build some good there? Yeah. So, you know, I'm on level one being playful. The idea of a parish podcast, I don't, I've never heard anyone else uh, say that because we don't necessarily associate parish ministry with yeah. anything digital. But of course, parish ministry was the norm for centuries uh, when you had uh, pastors who were living in a very centralized geography, a village, um, a, a smaller rural area who uh, could lead church services and teaching mul- multiple times a week. Uh, they could go visit people in their homes or at their workplaces, which also tended to be the home at that point. And so you had this opportunity for constant relationship and formation. And I'm not trying to idealize the the parish moment. Uh, you know, they're just like us. They were normal people. They had uh, petty squabbles, you know, arguments about parsonages and wood allowances. It's kind of fun if you go back and read what pastors complained about back in the day. But what changed everything wasn't the smartphone, it was vehicles. Uh, Vehicles allowed us to essentially uh, uncreate centers of geography because the suburbs don't have a center. Um, Even in urban environments, we're much more dispersed than we used to be. It's a good chance anybody listening to this is, you know, anywhere from five to 20 miles even from the church that they're attending. You can't do a parish ministry when you're that geographically um, dispersed. And, And I think podcasts actually allow us to, in some ways restore, recover some of the goodness that came from parish ministry, specifically the Monday through Saturday connections that used to exist between pastors and people inside the churches. And this really dawned on me, we weren't trying to do this, but we do, we do, I think seven podcasts now, Um, but I I work on several of them. And I I just had people coming up to me consistently saying, Hey, you know, I was out on my jog yesterday. Hey, I was out doing some chores yesterday and I was listening to you. And I hope it's not weird. You're such a part of my life. And I want to talk to you. And I said, that's not weird at all. That's fantastic. I am a part of your life and I do want to talk to you about what you're learning. And I'm so glad that the podcast created a space for you to not just connect with uh, Jesus, but connect with your church and connect with your pastor. but in between Sundays, and, and that's where the parish podcast idea comes in. Because people can say, "Well, you know, it's a one-way conversation; it's not a two-way conversation." And, and my pushback is always, "Well, yes, but no," because Sunday always comes, and you do have opportunities to continue the conversation. It's no more of a one-way conversation than a church class or a sermon would be. And if you believe there's power in that for a spiritual formation, I think podcasts can fill in a similar role, and perhaps most importantly, take up the airspace that uh, this very toxic media. Uh, system that we're living in is taking up. If you can take away time from Fox News or CNN or whatever else is consuming people's attention and reorient it towards a deep devotion and love for Jesus, why wouldn't you do it? Um, And and thankfully, this is relatively simple to do now. It's way easier to do today than it even was five years ago. And so I've I've been encouraging pastors of large churches, medium churches, small churches to do this. And from top to bottom, even from the smallest churches, um, I've discovered it's it's actually made some big impacts on their ministry and their uh, spiritual formation. Yeah, it's been true. It's been true on our end. Obviously, Patrick, you and I have been friends for a year and a half, couple of years now. And we, yeah, our church, our local church has has drafted off of so much of what you said and um, working toward creating a much more robust sort of offering of podcasts. And it's exactly that. You see folks randomly in the lobby of church on Sunday and they'll, they'll begin into a story from your life. And you're like, how did you know that? And then you realize, <laughs> Oh, it came up yeah. in this podcast conversation that we had this week. And so and so was listening to it. Yeah. We've got a great guy named Craig at our church who is avid runner. And it's exactly that. He's like, man, and you are my running mates. I run with you every single week. And, and that does lead to a much more embodied analog connection. It's not just mm-hmm. a one-way street. That's been, that's been our experience as well. Yeah. Really helpful stuff. Um, you know, we were talking earlier, Patrick, before we hit record and I was telling you that, you know, one of the goals of this podcast is that the podcast itself, the listening experience itself might be a, a form of a sort of collective exhale for people you know, a reminder to slow down, to examine their lives with God. And um, you and Keith Simon wrote a book uh, a year ago um, that I just found tremendously helpful called Truth Over Tribe, which is also the name of one of your podcasts. And there there was this deep breath 
uh, line in the book that I want to read for folks listening. You say, Jesus has things under control in your life, in your family, in your city, in your nation. That is reality. And I love this word. Don't let the unrealities of tribalism steal that piece. The unrealities of tribalism is such an important reminder, such a helpful way to think about, you know, our media saturated lives these days. Mm. So talk about uh, how we might remind ourselves of the sovereignty of Christ. You know, what you're saying in the book, what are some ways that have been helpful for you, not just as a pastor, but as a follower of Jesus who is doing so much work in the chaos and cacophony that is the internet how do you remind yourselves of these realities, be it small little practices or a particular paradigm for how you go about your day? You know, one of the striking features of the book of Daniel, especially the narrative portion at the front, is Daniel and his friends, they, they are non-anxious. And they are in multiple times in, in life-threatening circumstances uh, where if they make the wrong call, they die. And yet you don't get the sense that they are reacting, that they're freaking out. Um, instead, you get the sense that something else is happening. And when you get to the end of every story, there's kind of this summary point where uh, the author is narrating a truth, a reality about who God is. And all of them center on the notion that God is the king of kings, not Nebuchadnezzar, that God is the Lord of lords, not Babylon. And it's a reminder that when we have a deep faith in God's sovereign uh, orchestration of history, not just in our lives, but in the totality of history, it frees us from anxiety and frees us to become the kinds of non-anxious presences that can actually change Babylon, that can actually do work for good because we're not reacting, we're, we're not, we're not uh, responding out of fear. And I think technology really has an ability to eclipse that truth. Yes, God is sovereign, but it, the the reality of of, of this massive uh, technological apparatus that we all live our lives in begins to eclipse reality. And I think people tend to fall into two different categories. You end up with tech operationalists and tech determinists. So your operationalists, these are people who say, look, I can use technology to do anything I want to do. It's in my hands. It's under my control. And in that case, you don't believe in God's sovereignty because you think you are the God that's controlling reality. You're trying to use technology to keep control of the situation. The tech determinists, on the other hand, say, no, technology is designed. It has a directionality to it, and there's nothing we can do to resist that directionality. And so we're, we're, we're all just – there's nothing we can do. Let's give up hope. Um, but in that case, technology becomes God, and it can force me to become whatever it wants me to become. And what I want to say is, no, we still have agency, and God is still in control. God still is sovereign. And whatever's happening with our technology, with the tribalism, with the politics, with the media ecosystem, that remains true. There's um there's there's a family in our church who had a daughter who had bone cancer, and uh, she went through multiple rounds of chemo. She was a just amazing, wonderful little girl, and she eventually uh, lost her life to the cancer. And her parents went through her journals that she kept, and at the top of many of the pages, she scrawled out this strange phrase, and it was "the moon is round." Just over and over again, the moon is round, the moon is round, the moon is round. They couldn't figure out what it meant. And they literally figured out that she took it from a book that was pointing out that even when the clouds cover the moon and you can't see it, the moon is still round. Even when uh, it's just a crescent and that's all you can see, the moon is still round. That There's all these things that come into life, grief and pain and whatever else. But you know what's always true? The moon is still round. And it was her way of reminding herself that whatever was happening to her with her bone cancer, God was still sovereign. God was still in charge. God is still in power. God still loved her. God still held her in his hands. And so even though with the cancer and the pain and the chemo, even if it became an eclipse over his sovereignty and his love, she was reminding herself, whatever I think I see, it's not real. But at the end of the day, the moon is round. He is in charge. And that's an extreme example. But I think we all allow ourselves to get into situations where we act as though the moon's not round, where we let... Uh, technology eclipse the moon, where we let the clouds eclipse the moon, and we forget the truth, the fundamental underlying truth that he loves us and he's working all things out for our good. And that can sound trite, but it's not trite. It's a truth we need if we want to live as non-anxious presences in our cultural moment. Mm. Wow. In the book, 
Truth Over Tribe, you, I found this immensely helpful. You name the very unique anxieties, speaking of anxiety and the pursuit of non-anxious presence, uh, you name the very unique anxieties that are experienced by three distinct groups of people online. And I think most all of us fit one of these three and we vacillate between them depending on the matter at hand. Sometimes we're one or the other or another. Um, you talk about crusaders, the hunted and bystanders. So crusaders are those who, who fear those on the outside of their tribe. They're on a mission and anybody who is outside of their particular tribe on a particular matter, that's what they fear. That's, that's who they fear. That's the group that causes anxiety. And then the hunted are those who are constantly walking on eggshells and they fear being canceled. They, you were talking about it earlier. You know, if I betray my tribe in any form or fashion, I'm out. And that's, that's what causes anxiety. And then there are the bystanders who fear breaking with their own tribe to speak truth. There's an awareness. Hey, maybe this is not it, but there's a fear. If I, if I say anything, man, that's going to wreck some things for me. And that causes anxiety. So as we wrap up, because I think those categories, um, we can relate to one of those three at any given moment, speak to those who are listening and speak pastorally for a moment and offer each of us, wherever we are there, crusaders, the hunted, bystanders, however we feel, um, offer us a way forward toward freedom from our unique anxieties and the joy and the peace that you were talking about at the start of the conversation that's available uh, in a life of ongoing communion with God who is sovereign. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me start with uh, the crusaders, uh, people who... I think most fundamentally, in a really good way, you fear that wickedness won't go unpunished, that injustice is going to prevail, that lies are going to conquer truth. And you fear that because you know the downstream consequences of what happens when uh, evil, injustice, and lies reign supreme. And so your impulse to you know sniff out heretics and then maybe to snuff out heretics comes, I think, from a, a good desire. The, the problem is, as I'm already implying, that when we take on the crusader, the full-bore crusader mindset, um, we become the very thing we fear. We become the oppressors we're trying to uh, protect the oppressed from. And if that's your mentality and you love justice, again, if we can go back to the truth of who God is, in, in Romans 12, Paul says, calls us to remember that God said, vengeance is mine, um, which is God's way of saying, I've called you to to non-violently uh, resist evil in the world. I've called you to uh, pour coals on your enemy's head by loving them. I've called you to pray for those who persecute you. And you can do that simply because you know that in the end, I will set all things right. Whatever it is that you sense is wrong. But, but there's the other half of this, which is, I, I think what the crusader forgets is that God knows what he's doing. Perhaps he's calling us to nonviolent loving resistance because that's actually what can change the world. It's not the pugilism. Yeah. It's not the arguing. It's not the fighting. That's what we do when we're anxious and we're being reactive. What we do when we're non-anxious and we're trusting God is we love our enemies. Now, if you fall into the hunted category, you're fearful that someone's – going to cancel you, or, or maybe they're going to threaten your job, your sense of security in life. Um, my encouragement to you is that often our sense of threat is disproportionate to the actual threat itself. There are actually not many people who get canceled and face these kinds of repercussions. It feels far more common because these are stories that get published and publicized, and you hear about them all the time, and it gives you a perception this is happening everywhere when it's not. I, I think about a story when I was a kid. I was walking down the street, and this massive dog just came out of nowhere and started chasing me. And I, it's it's the most fearful memory I, I have. I'm running as fast as I can. I think this thing's going to catch me. It's going to go for the jugular. I'm going to be dead before I know it. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs for my mom, which she must have heard because she comes from inside the house to the outside. And she sees me and stops and she leans down and she starts petting the dog. And 
I don't even remember what kind of dog it was, but I'm pretty sure it was just like a tiny little Pomeranian. But in my mind, as a six-year-old, I thought this thing was a, a, a trained killer. And my mom immediately identified, this dog's trying to have fun with you. It's barking at you because it wants to play with you. And that's not my point that, that people <laughs> just want to play with you. My, my point is saying that our ability to assess fear when we're afraid is terrible. And so again, it goes back to that fundamental truth, realizing, okay, if God's in charge and he knows what's best for me and he's, and he's overseeing my life, I can trust him to be the one to take care of it. I don't have to be afraid of these things. And again, it's just Paul's words in Romans eight, when he talks about the fact that not die, you know, death or life, angels, demons, present, future, any powers, not height or depth, anything in creation can separate us from the love of God. Um, I think the last category is the bystanders. Um, and these are people who it's your tribe that's doing the crusading. And by the way, this happens on the right and left. Cancel culture kind of gets coded as like a left only thing. You, you for sure see it on both sides. Um, and you see what your group is doing, that they're attacking someone. And you know for a fact that it's wrong. This is unfair. This is unjust. You're becoming the thing that you are trying to stop. Um, but you don't say anything. Because you're afraid of the repercussions. Um, you're afraid of being found out. You're afraid of losing relationships. You're afraid of losing comfort. And if that's you, you probably also feel a lot of guilt and shame that you're not brave enough to say anything, maybe, or, or a conflicted conscience. You know, is God angry at me? You know, it, it creates a lot of inner turmoil that no one but you can see because you're terrified to talk about it. And in this instance, I think a lot about the story of uh, Joseph of Arimathea. You know, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. So he's presumably there when Jesus is on trial before his crucifixion. And at least so far as the gospel accounts tell us, he never says anything. He's a follower of Jesus, but he is a bystander. He's watching his own tribe quite literally crucify someone and does nothing. And, and, and you have to wonder the amount of, you know, guilt and shame, conflicted conscience that he had. Um, but after Jesus dies, you know, the Bible tells us that he went to Pilate to recover his body and bury Jesus, um, which would have been a, a public act of courage. And I take a lot of courage from it because it reminds me that even when we perhaps have been cowardly, when we haven't said the things we should, when we should have said them, there's always forgiveness. There's always another opportunity to do the right thing and to trust in, in God. And I think Joseph of Arimathea shows us that with Jesus. Yes, I don't think he probably did the right thing when he's in the Sanhedrin, but afterwards he found the courage. And, and, and I have to imagine, you know, we find that courage only from Jesus and him saying, hey, whatever will come, I am still with you. Again, it, it starts sounding repetitive, but that fundamental promise of God's presence in hardship is exactly what we all need to hear if we want to face the anxieties caused by tribalism. Yeah, the moon is still around. Yeah, even even if we feel like there's threat um, and maybe we're the ones that are going to be canceled or if I speak up, uh, that's the end of me. Yeah, the moon is still around. God is still sovereign. He's still in control. And he's writing a, a story that no one else can write uh, and that no one else can stop. Yeah, really helpful. Patrick, as always, man, when I um, listen to you talk, it's it's both um, intellectually stimulating, but most importantly, it gives me so much hope as a, as a human being and as a follower of Jesus. And you have a way of expanding our purview that it's not just this narrow sort of what is happening right in front of me. But when we take the blinders off, God is up to something and we have an opportunity to participate in that story, to join God in co-writing that story as challenging as that may be. So I, I so appreciate everything you've shared here today. Um, for folks who are new to you and to the work you do, and there is a lot of work you do, and I have found so much of it incredibly helpful for me. Um, let people know where they can find all of the various things that you are working on. You know, you're an author, a podcaster, um, a writer, all of those things. So, so point people in the right direction where they, where they can connect with, with. Yeah. Yeah. Work. No, thanks for asking. You know, uh, before the, I say that, I, I just want to give you an, an amen at the end there. I know that I need to be reminded continually that I worship a King who literally kicked down the doors of death and then came out the other side in resurrection yeah. life. And that is 
an impossible story if it weren't true. But if I remember that story, there is so much freedom from all these cross pressures that we're all facing and feeling and Mm. experiencing. Um, And that's, you know, that that's the deepest truth I want to keep in my heart. Um, To to answer your question of where people can find out what we're doing, Two big places right now, if you want to hear more about digital ministry, digital discipleship, which is uh, a lot of stuff that we pioneered in our own church, and uh, that that can uh, make people's hair stand up on end. It's probably not what you think. (laughs) Jay wouldn't have me on here if it wasn't. (laughs) That's right. Um, That's right. You can check us out at EndeavorWithUs.com, EndeavorWithUs.com. And uh, we have a weekly newsletter where myself and my friend Ian Harper are exploring what we're learning about digital discipleship and how we use it to um, not just form and shape people, but draw them into churches. Uh, And if you want to hear more on the the front of culture and cultural commentary, tribalism, uh, Truth Over Tribe, that's the name of a podcast that I run, as well as the name of a book. So if you search for that, you can find more there. Awesome. I love it. Patrick, love you. Love the work you do. So grateful for our friendship. Thank you so much for joining us on the Digital Examine today. Thanks for having me. This was great. Hey, thanks again, you guys, for joining us on the Digital Examine podcast. So glad that you are uh, on this journey with us of examining our lives, spending time in communion with God, not just as a calendared reality, but the hope being that life is just an ongoing communion with God. And I hope today's conversation was convicting for many of us, that we are living in such deep abiding communion with the internet sometimes that it takes the place of um, the moon, which is always round, even when it looks like it isn't, that God is always sovereign and that he's always in control, and that again, he is writing a better story than we could possibly imagine, and it's a story that we are invited to be a part of. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter what sort of anxiety you are feeling, um, God is writing a story of peace and joy and love, and you are invited to be a part of that story. So thanks again for listening. If this podcast is helpful for you and to you, um, feel free to share it like it, subscribe to it, write a a review. Uh, All of those things are really helpful to us. And uh, we will talk to you all again very, very soon. The Digital Examine is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound Engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Helen Lee, Travis Albritton, and Andrew Bronson. Our production assistants are Christine Policcio and Isis Tolson, and I'm your host, J.Y. Kim. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel, and leave a rating and review to support the podcast.